we were walking around Goodwill the other day, and Bradley found this book, and I thought, oh, that's cool, and it was only $1.99, so I bought it, and, and I'll, let me tell you what it is, and then if you want it, it's yours. Uh, we'll just, um, in fact, Bradley, why don't you come on up? You can help be my book delivery guy. Yeah, come on up here. Yeah, come on, you're going to deliver my book. Hattie, you want to come help me out? All right, Emma, come on up. I need, I need an assistant. So this is a uh, long story short by Marty Machowski. It's about 70 weeks, I believe, 70-something weeks worth of family devotions. It's just intended to be a 10-minute conversation, um, five, I believe it's five nights a week, and in 72 or 78 weeks, whatever it is, you, you can, wow. but that could be uh, problematic. Um, anyways, if you would like to take your family over the next year through the entirety of the Old Testament, this book's for you. Who is anybody interested in, I'm going to start giving away books regularly. There you go, all the way in the back. Take it on back there. Uh, if I find good books, I'm gonna, that was it. That was the only book I had to give away. You, you were just Bradley's courage, apparently. Um, so thank you, Emma. Appreciate that. Also, just a reminder from last week uh, is we've got Spring Serve Day coming up. We're a couple of months out still, but we're hoping for recommendations of people we can serve in the community. We, we have not had much of that come through. So there's a QR code on your, in your worship folder, or you could write it on your blue card as well. We're going to try and organize teams of people to go out and just meet needs in the community. So if you, if you know somebody who needs something done in their house, on their house, outside of their house, with their car, whatever it might be, I did have one person contact and say, hey, I would be up for like a, a foster families or single moms car care day. So uh, we, we at least have one person interested in that. But what we're trying to do is organize teams to go out and serve people in our community, real people face-to-face, -face, just to bless people who need a little help. So if you have a neighbor or a friend or a family who could use a project done at their house uh, to, just to bless them, would you use that QR code to, um, to let us know who that is? Um, today's message, now Anthony expressed great doubt in this, uh, but today's message is probably going to be a short one. Uh, I've been under the weather. Yeah, everybody's laughing already. I know. We'll, we'll see what kind of miracle there is, but um, I've, I've been pretty under the weather, and just to make sure I can get through two messages, uh, I'm going to be brief today. I have not really taken anything out of this message in terms of the points I want to make, but we're just going to have to be simple and let the Holy Spirit uh, do what he does. That being said, we're, we're talking today in our final value about the value of discipleship. And really in many ways, this is, I told you these weren't in any particular order, and they weren't. But it's amazing to see how God, as I've prepared, has showed connections all the way. And I think really in many ways, when we come to this idea of discipleship, uh, what we find is it's kind of the culmination of everything we've talked about. When we take God's word, when we take prayer, when we take unity in the church, when we take relationships with one another, and we, we put these things together, 
in, in discipleship type relationships, and that's what we're going to talk about today, or, or when we put these, all of these things together, what we end up with is discipleship. I can remember some years ago, I was sitting in a truck stop restaurant in Portland. I was a Multnomah Bible College student, and I was working at a, volunteering at a church in, uh, in Vancouver, and so there was this truck stop that was near the border that I would meet this mentor that, that, I, um, that I had. He invited me to come work with him in youth ministry, and so Jim and I would sit down in this restaurant uh, fairly regularly, and we would meet, and we would talk. And uh, it, was, it was a pretty surprising relationship to me as a guy who um, I, I grew up in the church and I was loved well by people in the church, but outside of the church's programs, there wasn't much spiritual deposit. Uh, there wasn't much instruction. And, and in fact, sometimes what st- instruction may, come, may have come was, was sometimes in, in the wrong ways but, um, or even in the examples that were set. But, but that's another thing. But I didn't have somebody who really ever just said, I want to invest in you in this, this thing we call discipleship whereby I want to invest in you to some spiritual end. And so when this man came along and he said, I would love to meet with you regularly and invest in you, and he saw something very similar about his personality and mine, and he thought he had something to offer, and so we started to meet. And I can just remember sitting in this truck stop restaurant and meeting with this man who, uh, the the meetings were shocking to me. we, We didn't just talk about ministry, and he didn't want to just know what sins I was struggling with. There was a a transparency from him that I had never experienced before in my life. A a willingness to to confess sins that he struggled with and to ask me about mine and to talk about ministry. And and he would say hard things to me and and warn me. And uh, my youth pastor growing up, was a guy who pulled no punches with me. He, he did make a spiritual investment in me, but, uh, but you know, you gotta wonder, what would compel somebody who's, who's being asked about their sin, who's being called out on their sin, who's being warned about the dangers of their personality and ministry and, and, and the danger of sin as you consider uh, ministry as a full-time career, what would compel somebody to go back to that? I think most of us would be like, wait a minute, you want me to sit down in a restaurant and tell you what my struggles are, what my sins are, what my heart is prone to? You want to be able to call me out and caution me on these things? I'm out of here. I'm not coming back to that. Well, I think there was a couple of factors. There was the factor first of just, there was a lot of encouragement in that time. Uh, this guy believed in me. He believed in the potential that I had. And he thought, his, he thought there was enough value in me as a person that, that his time was worth giving to me. But, but secondly, to just have somebody who was willing to make an investment, to, to make a deposit in me, was unusual. That, that was not the norm for me growing up. And so to have this guy who wanted to invest in me that way was, was great. But you know, I think whether, whether we've not had much of that type of investment in our lives or whether we have lots, there's still something meaningful when somebody says, I love you enough to make an investment in your life, to give you my time. To, to give you parts of my prayer life, to, to give you uh, effort in, in helping you. And I think sometimes we forget 
that, that that really is a loving thing. See, love, I know I remind us of this a lot, love is action. Love is always action. One of the things we talk about in, in our house is that hate doesn't have to be simply animosity. Hate doesn't have to be a, a desire to, uh, to do bad to somebody. Hate can simply be neglect. Just a, a simple failure to pursue somebody's good. I think of uh, Romans chapter 9, where we're told as, as God uses, uh, or as Paul uses the example, God through Paul uses the example of Jacob and Esau. And quoting Malachi, what, what Paul tells us in Romans 9 is that God says, Jacob, the younger of these two twin brothers, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, when God says that, what he does not mean is that he had some kind of animosity towards Esau. As the older son, Esau should have received the inheritance and the blessing from his father and all of those things. And God tells uh, their mother that, that he's not going to work that way, that he is going to use the younger and the older will serve the younger. And so what God does with Jacob and Esau is he simply pursues the blessing of Jacob actively and does not pursue the blessing of Esau. And that's enough for God to say, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Love and hate is not always what one feels towards somebody else. Certainly it can involve that. But love and hate, biblically, are most often defined by what our actions are. To, to neglect our neighbors in the sharing of the gospel is to hate them. To neglect our church in, in the sharing of the spiritual gifts that God has given us, is to hate our church. To neglect our children and our wives. To pursue other things. To, to get tasks accomplished. To, to work. To just run over our own agendas at the sake of pursuing their good is hate. It, it's hate in action. And, and love... Uh, in great contrast, is also action. It is pursuing good. Uh, John 3.16 doesn't tell us, for God so loved the world that he felt nice. No, what it tells us is that he loved the world in the manner, in the fashion of giving, of doing something. Back to Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before one person ever wanted God to redeem them, God made a plan. Adam and Eve, in their sin, they did the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do, and that is turn to God, the one who can redeem them. They hid from him, and we continue that pattern. We run away. But God, before anybody even asked for forgiveness, promised his son. And then sent his son. And love is, a, is doing something. And discipleship, which is a, is a big word that maybe sometimes we don't fully understand. It's simply acting with love enough to invest in somebody else with eternity in view. Discipleship is simply acting with love 
enough to invest in somebody else with eternity in view. And so today, I want to talk about three directions of discipleship that are commanded in Scripture. The first direction of discipleship is man-to-man. Man-to-man. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 and 6, where we're told, But as for you, so Titus is the pastor of this church and uh, being left uh, there in, in Crete, Um, He says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. They're to to, to be quick-minded towards spiritual things. Dignified, acting, acting in ways and living in ways that adorn the gospel. Self-controlled. Men, how many a wrench has been chucked in a lack of self-control? Sound or, or healthy. Uh, growing up, my family was very much into horses. And healthy horses we called sound. And sick ones or lame ones we called unsound. This is the idea of safe or sound there. Healthy, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, and in faithfulness. Verse 6, likewise, we're going to come to the women in a minute, but in the same way, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. What, what, Titus, or what Paul is telling Titus there is that the older men, likewise, as the older women are to teach the younger women, so likewise, the older men are to teach the younger men to be self-controlled. Back up just a couple of pages to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Timothy being the pastor at the church in Ephesus, and Paul writing to him. Paul tells Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. This is a little bit like the airplane analogy, right? You, you have to put your mask on before you can help somebody else. You're not going to be any good to your children if you're passed out and they're not. You, you, you gotta, he, Timothy needs to be strengthened first by grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you have heard from me... In the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The plan of discipleship in the church is is that of multiplication. That older men spiritually are to invest in younger men spiritually. Older men in terms of just age and life are to invest in younger men. I'm concerned equally when I see a church that's all old people as I see a church that's all young people. Both would indicate unsoundness. And there could be lots of reasons for those, but we're not here to explore those. My method, without trying to say this is the only way to do it, I read through my Bible reading plan every year, and I just try and invite a couple people to do it with me. Hey, you read as well, and every two weeks we'll get together over coffee, and we'll talk about life and God's Word and how, what questions we have, how it's challenging us, uh, and we just read through the Bible together. And so I would ask the young men in the room, do you want to be invested in? 
I was part of a growth group uh, in my church in Tucson, and the pastor who was leading that growth group, he left the church, and so we picked up leadership of this group. And I asked the group, I said, I've got this, this man and his wife, they had raised godly children, they had served in ministry. This was a man who's now with the Lord, who I had deep respect for. I said, I'd like to bring Stu and Jackie in to lead our growth group and to, to help us know how to raise their ch- our children, hopefully with the outcome that they had with theirs. And the group said, no, we don't want that. We, we can figure things out on our own. Scripture calls that foolish. That's a fool's errand. Why not? You know, how sad would it be to, to get to having raised your kids and have them not walk with the Lord and then go back and say, maybe I should have got some advice from people. Young men, do you want to be invested in? And older men, are you willing to take your time to make that investment? The second direction of discipleship is woman to woman. Turning back to Titus, we see this in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 2 again. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Notice that he doesn't give us a direction of that reverence. Reverence with God? Reverent towards others? Reverent in worship? Yes, probably all of that. Reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of the Lord may not be reviled. The exact same thing is true of, of women as it is of men. That the older women are to make investments in younger women, in godliness, and in, in righteousness. And so the same two questions stand. It, young women, do you want older women to make an investment in you? And older women, are you willing to spend your time making an investment in younger women? And I would say these investments are best made Not in groups, in programs at the church, but in our homes and in coffee shops and just life to life, just spending time with people, knowing who they are, knowing their families, knowing their struggles. I can't help but to think of uh, Steve and Char Van Slyke. I don't I don't know if they're here this morning, but, but I want to brag on them because uh, when, when they were in our growth group, which has now become two growth groups, I just watched the way they, uh, they interacted. We had, we had families with young children, and then they have grown children and are in the grandparent stage, and, and yet they're showing up to sporting events at the high school for the kids of, of couples in the growth group. What, what an investment. You want to you communicate to a young person that I care about you? Show up in their space. Show up for the things that are important to them. And I promise you, that kind of action, it's, it's currency for influence. It's, it's currency for, for, being a gospel, for adorning the gospel. 
of Jesus Christ. And one of the things I hear over and over and over again, especially from uh, the, the older people, is they, they don't want to spend time with me, do they? And usually we just haven't tried. Like, we just kind of take that for, as an assumption. Young people don't want to spend time with me. Well, if I might be so bold as to say, if every way they spend time with you is on your terms and in your interests, they might not. But they do. People want to be invested in. People will sit at a truck stop coffee shop and have hard conversations when somebody is willing to love them enough to give them their time, their affection, their prayers, their advice, to listen as well, to be open and vulnerable as well, to, to be sincere about their failures. My, the best mentors I ever had were not people that I thought were perfect. They were very imperfect people and knew it. That doesn't mean they weren't mature, but willing to make investment in me. And the third direction of our discipleship is to be believer to unbeliever. Believer to unbeliever. This is also called evangelism. And we find this in Matthew 28, which we've already read today. And you can turn with me there to the end of the book of Matthew. But, but our discipleship is to be believer to unbeliever. You know what's really, really interesting? And if you, if you read, I would encourage you to read through the Gospels and, and look through this. And, and ask the question, was Jesus' method of discipleship significantly different with believers and unbelievers? And I think the answer is no. Jesus, he, he calls the disciples to follow him. He teaches them very, very little and then sends them out to teach what he's taught them. I think before Peter says, you are the Christ, before he looks at them and says, you know, are you going to leave me too? And they say, where will we go? You alone have the words of, of life. Before he looks at them after predicting his death three times and says, don't tell anybody what I've just told you, and I think he does that because he knows they're going to mess up the message because they don't get it yet. Before all of that, he sends them out to teach others to do ministry. Now, I'm not advocating for handing pulpits over to unbelievers, but, but I think so often we say, hey, look, evangelism and discipleship, they look super different. No, they don't. They look like loving somebody enough to have a relationship with them that is decisively spiritual in nature. And we see this commanded in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, starting in verse 18, Jesus comes to them on this mountain in Galilee, and he says, uh, says some interesting things. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now, let me just tell you, you got to know, if, you're, if the CEO of the company calls you in and says, sit down, and he says, you just have to know that all authority in this company has been vested in me, what do you think might come next? Something serious. 
you're probably about to get told what to do when, when, when you start with this reminder. And so Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, this is a passage that for big reasons in Greek that we're not going to talk about today, if you'd like to know more about the linguistics, you can come talk to me, but has been greatly confused. If you've ever heard it said, or if you've ever taught, that verse 19 says it would be better translated, as you are going, make disciples, it's not true. All that reveals is a a misunderstanding of the Greek language. There is, however, one main command, one imperative in the text that is followed by three participles that take on that same command. And the main imperative is make disciples. That's Jesus' big idea in this verse. All authority has been given to me. Make disciples of all nations. And for some of us, that might mean going to another nation. For some of us, that might mean in our workplaces or in our neighborhoods. But we are all called to make disciples. A disciple was simply a student who was learning from their rabbi. As the disciples learned from Jesus and their disciples learned from them, we're to take people who don't yet know Jesus or who who don't know Jesus as well as we do or haven't been walking with him as long as we do, and we're to invest in them in spiritual ways so as to help them grow in their faith, whether that's from zero or somewhere else. We are to make disciples, followers of Jesus. The three commands that are subordinate to that command that that tell us how to do that is number one, go. Jesus is telling us it's, it's not optional. He is absolutely not saying, hey, as you're going about your normal business, make disciples. That might be part of it. That this command here certainly does not exclude that. He's simply saying, you gotta go make disciples. It's non-optional. And we've got to make disciples of all nations. And we do that by baptism, baptizing them. That becomes a command. You are to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the third command that is part of making disciples is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so we, we, in, we make relationships to help people know how to obey Jesus, how to be baptized and participate in the life of the church. And, and we're to go in this effort to make disciples. Now, the question that some people have asked me, uh, you even got an email not that long ago saying, hey, is Matthew 28 only for the disciples or, or is that me? Like, do I get an out because I'm not a disciple and Jesus is giving this only to the disciples on, on Galilee? And uh, let's lock the doors real quick. I don't want anybody to get out of this. Because what Jesus says is, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Which means every command placed on the disciples is a command placed on you and on me. Yes, he's giving this to the disciples, but he's explicitly telling them that these disciples that you're supposed to make, they have to do all that I've commanded you as well. There's there's no second role or second rate. And then he says something super encouraging. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I think we overcomplicate this sometimes. 
I've said it over and over and over again that I think hospitality is key. Hosting relationships, that could be over coffee, that could be over lunch, that could be in your home. It's just spending time with somebody enough in ordinary places to have a relationship where, where ordinary conversations can become about spiritual things. Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another. When we put these two verses together, we find, by the way, neither of them being written to pastors or apostles, uh, that whether it's somebody inside the church or outside the church, we're all commanded to be hospitable. We're all commanded to host relationships with people that are for the purpose of making a spiritual deposit. I was at a, a men's camp one time, uh, just a, a group of men getting together kind of uh, on our own. It was an official church thing, but we were just out in the middle of nowhere. And this, this old guy named Frank came to this men's camp. And Frank was a character, and he'd been walking with the Lord for a long time. But one night, we're sitting around the fire, and we're all talking. And Frank says, hey, you all know what the difference between a genius and a smart person is? And we were like, nope. Don't have a clue, Frank. Help us out. He said a smart person learns from their mistakes. A genius learns from the mistakes of others. When I sat in that restaurant with Jim over 20 years ago, one of the things he told me in our first meetings, he said, Logan, I see a lot in your personality that's like me. And there's some real dangers in pastoral ministry that come with it. And, and I want to spend some time with you because, he said, you're allowed to make your own mistakes. You're just not allowed to make mine. And what he told me is that he wanted to, he, he wanted to allow me to stand on his shoulders. One of my hopes for my children has always been that they would be better people than, than I am. If they're better fathers better mothers, better church members, better pastors, should they choose that, better whatever, I'm not going be, to be upset about that. I'm going to be grateful for that. Because hopefully they won't make my mistakes. And hopefully they might look at me and say, I don't want to do that thing. And that would be fine because the Lord knows I've, I've sinned against them. But a smart person learns from their mistakes. A genius learns from the mistakes of others. Discipleship is the process whereby we don't leave other people to start from scratch and flounder and fail, but where we engage them and we say, I've been where you've been. You're allowed to make your mistakes. You're just not allowed to make mine. And I'll tell you that discipleship like this is almost impossible to program. It is virtually impossible. It happens in organic relationships. The best we can do is growth groups. And we don't tell growth groups what to do and what to teach and how to structure them because we want people to just engage in, in relationships with one another enough to, uh, to have influence and impact. If you're in a growth group and it's all old people, 
fix it. And I know what you're thinking. Well, we're comfortable. We've been together for years. But is your comfort more important than others' maturity? Or maybe even salvation? If you're in a growth group and it's all young people, fix it. If you're only involved in programs and not not having organic, real, meaningful relationships with people, fix it. If If you're too afraid to let people know who you really are, only Jesus can fix that. And what creates the kind of safety in our relationships to be able to do that with one another is to understand the gospel. Because I've said it before, I'll say it over and over again. If you spend enough time with me, I will sin against you. That's guaranteed. And, and I don't want to be the kind of person who hides in, in fear of that. Because Jesus has already taken care of it. And if you spend enough time with me, you'll sin against me. And you know what? That's already taken care of too. This is, this is Romans 8. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And so when we go to God and we say, hey, you know what so-and-so did? He doesn't say, well, they've already taken care of that. He says, I've already taken care of that. My son lived perfectly for them. My son died. The record of their debt, it's been canceled, having been nailed to the cross, Colossians. There's there's nothing left. For those of us who have faith, all our sin is dealt with. Your past doesn't matter. Your sin in the present, it matters in the sense of we want to live obediently, but it doesn't matter in the sense of I have to hide because God's dealt with it. One of the things that really just impresses me about the book of Revelation is there's this moment where this star comes down from heaven. It's described as a he, not an it, and he's got in his hand a key to the abyss. This is Satan who is cast out of heaven. He can no longer stand in the presence of God. And God says, finally, you're done, Satan. You're out of here. You're removed. And he comes down to earth, and he comes down angry, and it's not a good thing for earth. But heaven responds in praise to God, and part of what they say is this, the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. I think the reason scripture takes gossip and slander so seriously is because taking up the the position of accuser, whether it's we're accusing each other to each other or we're accusing each other to God, is to take up Satan's work. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. In the church, it, it it is God who justifies. So who can bring any charge against God's elect? What what should make you feel safe in your relationships with people in the church? It is not their trustworthiness, but Jesus' saviorness. What should make us feel safe in our relationships is not that I've been in this one group with these twenty or ten people for twenty years, but that my sin 
it's, it's already dealt with. And, and so we don't conduct ourselves in accusing relationships. We, we don't conduct ourselves the way Satan does. It's really interesting um, when in 1 Corinthians, and I'm a little off script, we're going to bring this thing to a close here in just a moment, but in all these descriptions of love that I've told you is a, um, that are all verbs, all actions, one at the very end says that love bears all things. This is a really hard word to translate because it's, it's a verb form of the noun roof. We don't have a verb form of the noun roof. But, but we, we love, it, it, it's born up, it bears up things the, the way like a pillar holds a roof up, the way beams hold a roof up. Love puts a cover on things. It doesn't expose it. Gossip and slander and accusation it's an attempt to expose. And God says love, love covers a multitude of sins. That's, that's the kind of relationships we have to be willing to have. And we've got to go first. We've got to be open and, and vulnerable. We've got to make deposits and not just demand them. It has, it has to be mutual. But, but we must. We must be a church of people who are not so busy or worn out or tired or fearful or comfortable or old or young to have meaningful relationships with each other that are decisively spiritual. The, the best spiritual things, they, they don't happen necessarily, I mean, I'll say programmatically. You might schedule time together, but they happen organically. Go in places together. Spending time together. Sitting in bleachers at sporting events. Or around a campfire. Or at a dinner table or in a restaurant, or wherever it may be, just spending time with people. And it's got to be, and I, I have to confess here my own failure, it's got to be between believers and unbelievers. I spend so much time in the church and investing in believers that, that oftentimes I just, I, I go, oh, I, I, where am I supposed to fit in a meal with my neighbors? Eh, shame on me. That's sinful. That's a failure to, to obey all that, that God has commanded. And so I haven't set a good example in that. But, but whether it's man to man, woman to woman, or believer to unbeliever, we just spend time with people. And we find ways to make those conversations spiritual. And, and by the way, I'll just close with this. As those relationships with, with people grow, our, our willingness to get to those conversations quickly will, will tell people how important they are. If you, if you build a conversation, if you build a relationship with somebody now to get to the gospel in 12 years, 
what you're telling people is this really isn't all that important. You, you might not go there on your first dinner, but you, you might not want to go there on your 500th either. A smart person learns from their mistakes. A genius learns from the mistakes of others. But for those of us who believe, it is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that provides all the safety we need to have those kind of relationships. And whatever it is that's a barrier to these things, let's, uh, let's get rid of those things so that we can spend time with people, life on life, and be disciples who make disciples. If the aim of a disciple is to become like their master, their rabbi, unless we're disciple makers, then we can't claim to be disciples. It doesn't mean we're not saved. It just means we're not following the example of our teacher. Lord, help us to be like you so that we might do good to others for your glory. Amen.